Today's Insight into Impact podcast is centered on resilience. I thought this was an appropriate topic for the podcast because if, as a global community, we are going to focus on more sustainable solutions and outcomes, then we need to be able to demonstrate a capacity for resilience and recovery. I hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome Lee Bennett from Institute of Tourism Leadership Australia to the Insight into Impact podcast. How are you getting today, Lee? Yeah, very good, Marcus. Thank you for uh, for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I guess just to um, really get our audience caught up to speed about how you and me know each other, um, I got to give you a lot of credit because without you, I'm not sure if uh, Third Eye Management would be what it is today. So thanks for your co- confidence and being a great mentor at an integral stage of my career. Thank you. Um, well, my, uh, unintended. Uh, it's uh, it's pl- a great outcome. You're doing doing uh, very good things. Thank you. Thank you. And I guess, uh, you know, to get into this, the reason why we, we are here today is to talk about resilience. And mm. um, I think that as we are in the midst of a pandemic, resilience is so applicable and, and so pertinent to so many lives. Can you talk about a little bit about what is resilience? Well, that's a, a really good question. I think it's different things to different people, which sounds a bit um, like I'm dodging the question. Um, very much it's become, it's become a, a phrase around um, recovery from disasters and so on. But I'm not sure that's uh, necessarily the, the definition that we take. Um, we see resilience in people as uh, the ability to bounce back and to recover and respond with commitment and optimism. So that's a definition which we've, we've borrowed um, and I really like. Because there's some critical words that, in fact, every word in that, that definition is very important. It's that bouncing back and how long you stay over when you uh, hit challenges or obstacles. Do you become paralyzed or do you see uh, an obstacle as a challenge? And those are two very different things. And then recovering and responding with commitment and optimism um, alludes to the fact that we, we need to know why we get out of bed. We need to understand... Uh, you know, what drives us, what our vision, what our goals are. Um, and we need to be optimistic and confident about those. So it's quite a com- complex thing. And I think um, on a personal resilience level, those are the challenges that we um, put in front of people all the time. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to diving into that a bit more as, as we continue on. Just to make this clear to the listeners, can you relate that definition and back to the pandemic? I mean, I, I know because we, we work on some projects together, we're doing a webinar together, that you're, you're quite a busy guy. And, and really, you've, I don't know if you've even had a day off since a month into the uh, pandemic. So can you relate that definition a bit more to resilience in the pandemic? Uh, yeah, look, so much of what we've done has, um, it's been serendipitous in, in one sense, in that we were um, looking at resilient leadership programs for people who were affected by uh, monsoon flooding uh, and bushfires and cyclical weather events here in Australia, particularly in northeast Australia. Uh, but that has uh, all turned on its head since the pandemic, which has affected everybody globally. Um, so the resilience we've been doing very much has been around uh, getting people to, to look at their business and their organisation and their community, but so much of the focus that we take in the, the leadership space has been if you can't get your personal resilience, you can't get your composure, your emotional intelligence under control, very little else after that will work in your favour. So we very much have seen the pandemic has flattened a lot of people, and we can talk about that later. 
Um, we've seen businesses that really suffer. Organizations, CEOs have got caught in the crisis and worked people even harder as opposed to using the, the moment and the time to come closer and more so to plan ahead and to uh, you know, look for a, a different future. So it's, it really has been a very telling event. And I mean, I think there were some fascinating uh, conclusions or observations to draw from that. One of the things that you had talked about is planning and, and the need to plan is really drive that focus. I mean, when you're dealing with stakeholders, how would you break down the various stakeholder groups that you work with in regards to resilience work? And how are they involved in that planning process? Uh, look, it's very, the answer is it depends. Um, in the main, we've been working with people who have had access to government funds. And uh, in doing so, they have, um, uh, there's been a set of criteria to meet. So it's very much been the stakeholder has been the client, but then back to the funder, typically a state or a federal government here in, in this country. Then we work with them to ascertain through various assessments their, their, commun- their pers- perspective and perceptions and assessment of their community's resilience and their own resilience. And we, we weave those into the, the model we look at, which we might talk about later on. So our direct engagement is um, not there with, uh, at a broad level until we uh, come face-to-face with participants and then we engage as heavily as we possibly can. But typically, it's with that head client. Excellent. I guess that, that's really what's setting the process. And I guess just thinking it through here, and I think that you had mentioned this in, at the very beginning, is that resilience really is talking about recovery. Is there any difference between the two? Um, look, I think there's something that's quite um, sequential in all of that, which, um, which works. And that successful recovery uh, you know, recognizes, supports, and builds on individuals, community, and organizational capacity through resilience. So you can recover, uh, but you can't recover in, uh, in a flash. You can't recover in a very short term. So our program looks to the future to ensure that you know, communities, organizations, and individuals all have those traits and mindsets and and the social capital to be able to recover. So often, and I think the danger at the moment, resilience is becoming seen to be the same thing as recovery. And recovery after a disaster is, uh, is, is quite a different thing. And I think long-term resilience needs to be built. So ours is about that capacity. Uh, and we have a firm belief within that, Marcus, that uh, you can develop the skills and the traits and the mindsets for resilience. So the, you know, the behaviors, the thoughts and actions that people can be learned and developed. And that's very important, I think, that we work on those two principles. That sounds fascinating. And how, how long does it take for you to, because I know that you go to, you know, you do a lot of flying in and a lot of flying out. How, how long is a typical project for you? Or how long are you involved in that planning process and so forth? Well, again, it depends, of course, on the client and what their needs are. But the model that we've been developing and implementing is, has been uh, usually over a three or four month period. And the pandemic, of course, um, uh, intervened in that. And we, like other people, pivoted and had, had to move online. But typically, we'll have uh, a number of three or four days of um, face-to-face with, with participants and the client. Uh, but in between, we have a really important element, which is uh, one-on-one coaching and, and again, uh, Happy to elaborate on our, how our approach to that now or later on. But uh, we think that it's very important that doing one-offs and not really engaging with people doesn't work. So this is where we tie your engagement question to individuals. And one example is down in northern New South Wales in, in Australia, whereby we had a group of some 30, uh, a mixed cohort cross-sector of professional people uh, that we uh, spent some time with, uh, three workshops, but again, uh, had that coaching 
and then we train them up to be certified resilience mentors. And now that, that region has got at least another 25 or 30 people that they can call upon to build that social capital and build that skills uh, in their own uh, community. So for us, it's about that legacy and giving them some tools to carry that on. I think it's a really important part of resilience. That's a great point. I mean, it's from a lot of the work that I've done, it, a lot of times it's after the fact. It's, it's to clean something up. And I think that proactive approach is, is so important. Are you able to shed some insight into some of the work that you did months ago, even before the pandemic? Because now I, I see it as right now there, there's such a high demand. But I know that there's been work that you've done in, say, tourism and mental health. Is that similar? Is, I mean, it seems like it, it, it would be. Uh, yeah, look, the, the pandemic is, um, again, it's, it's, it's incidental in one sense, <clears throat> obviously very important, and it's changed uh, the way we approach things and, and how, how, um, what we might do, and we've learned a lot from that. But we were already into the resilience because, uh, again, uh, countries like this one that, that get impacted by really adverse weather events um, are constantly going through a cycle of trying to adapt and learn. So uh, what we were doing previously was uh, in response to things like monsoon bushfires from two to three years ago, not any current rounds of uh, bushfires from the previous fire season that impacted here. And again, it's that we were pushing that notion of getting in and working long-term with people. And in communities, uh, I think the really fascinating thing is that there's some good research that, uh, was, that has been done locally uh, on uh, the effects of flooding back in 2011 on a regional um, city and township in Australia. And uh, it really looked at the fact that social connectedness, optimism, and community learning were the three vital ingredients to build on social capital and to get in advance of the disaster. As you say, you call in for the, called in for the mop-up. Well, two or three years before the mop-up, people need to anticipate that there will be some adverse event. I think the pandemic has made people realise that you don't have to be in a monsoonal flooding area or a bushfire zone. Uh, you know, something can hit us which will fundamentally um, impact in our lives and our businesses. So we see that as really important. It's back to that future and projecting through and building those long-term uh, community development plans, not quick fixes. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. I think let's, let's just stay here for a moment because, you know, in the work that even you and me have done together, it's been about gathering perspectives from, from stakeholder groups and, and really trying to understand the issues and challenges that, that they face and, and how they're responding and how those responses result in, in, into impact. You know, as you're going in and doing this work as sort of this proactive approach, how are you getting feedback to make sure that when you are sort of ahead of the curve or ahead of the, the challenge that the people are learning what they need to and that they're able to sort of, um, they will have the tools that are necessary when the time comes. Is there a, uh, an evaluation process that you use or how does that work? Yeah, um, we can improve our evaluation processes a lot, uh, without a doubt. We get evaluation from, uh, from participants and some of that's very immediate and, and anecdotal and, and, and other parts are, are more structured. Part of what we're doing was already uh, was part of an inclusion um, and diversity and resilience link with uh, the Asia-Pacific University in uh, Beppu in Japan. And we had some people come out and look at our programs and begin that evaluation. And uh, that's uh, all part of a, you know, a presentation uh, in November in 2020. Uh, the university will be looking at some of the results of what we've been finding out there. So 
we first of all acknowledge that we see there's a link between um, uh, inclusive leadership and resilience, and uh, that's a, a proven research link uh, that we've been able to leverage. So again, if you uh, very simply, if you include people in the decision making, if you include them in the analysis, you include them in the assessment, and you include them in the problem solving, you should be able to cope, adapt, grow, and uh, you know respond to things in a better way. Um, and that's one of the reasons we conduct a, um, a pre pre program survey on four factors on community resilience. We get the perceptions of, of people, and and those four elements have been social capital community competence, economic development, and information and, and communication. And they answer a very, very simple online survey, which uh, has enabled us then to have a data set now that uh, compares about eight regional areas in Australia that are uh, about 3,000 kilometres apart, and um, also compare that to a data set we gathered from students uh, at APU University from up to 12 to 15 countries across Asia, Asia and, and then a few from, from, the, from the US. Um, and that's given us some really you know, good beginning data to start comparing the perceptions people have about their communities. Because a lot of it is the perception. Um, I dare I've got another tangent here, but it's a bit of placebo in this. If you truly believe in your government, and you believe that your government does amazing things or came with those amazing things, or conversely, you have cynicism, skepticism, and concerns about your government, well, I suspect those answers come through as quite different things, even if neither of those is the reality. Uh, and I, and I, I, you may well want to cover this later, but you know, my big lesson from the, the global pandemic is, uh, uh, has, has not been any one incident. It's been how fascinating it is that a country's character, its societal personality has shone through. And countries we expected perhaps to do poorly in our unconscious biases or to do well actually have, have shown the reverse. And I, I think without naming countries, it's been quite extraordinary. And, and Australia is the one country that we can speak very um, you know, um, informatively about. Uh, we probably went against the, the national character in some way of... Uh, we don't necessarily love all our governments, but we are a robust democracy. And what we did, we listened to the science, which is not something we typically would do, e.g. climate change. Uh, but we listened to the science, we put faith in our politicians, and we just haven't seen the, uh, the chaos uh, in some countries. And we certainly um, uh, were almost a country that's uh, eliminated the virus at this point. Um, I just think, that quite, think that's quite fascinating. I'm not saying any of that as a point of national pride. That's part of the problem that some countries have faced. Um, it's just a fascinating point that um, you could compare, and there's some great work done in the past from Hofstede on this, the traits of countries around things like individualism and collective action and so on, uh, and see how that had any link to how they have coped and dealt with the pandemic. Fascinating topic, Marcus, for another, uh, oh, <laughs> another well, discussion, I, perhaps. Well, you know what I think is interesting is because you had mentioned about that data set. Well, it's all interesting, but you had mentioned about that data set. And I almost wonder if, if you're able to sort of determine some algorithms to, to predict probabilities based off of that data set and some of those key points there that you were closing off with, with um, 
I'm sorry, you quoted a, a, a researcher there. I can't, I Hofstede. Hof, yeah. Hofstede, yeah. And so is there a way that through some of the data that you're gathering that you may actually even be able to, to predict um, now that you've actually lived through this and you're starting to see what is turning into to positive impact and negative impact and, and good recovery and resilience practice, is there a way that we could start to decipher and almost use that that data for a forward-thinking approach? Look, yes, we could. It's a, it's a really, um, yeah, it's a very insightful question. Uh, that has been looked at as part of the um, the collaboration with uh, APU in uh, in Japan, and uh, um, whether that becomes a, a really strong part of it. But most definitely, it's that looking at how can we find some predictors of of behaviour? How can we find uh, some attributes and traits that will help us predict that, and and you know, within that, it's uh, it's something that um, we we should be talk, talking to third eye about as well because uh, the overlap here, right back to the original you know topics we've been covering, it, it strikes me that people see resilience and recovery in very kind of linear, very linear fashion. When if we think of it as a series of cycles that our resilience will build before an event and build after an event, then it kind of rolls through in my head as opposed to um, being these one-off you know, red flags where people respond and do something and then go away. Um, and I think it's a fascinating research space and it's not, um, not a fourth day I have to, to do that you know, quantitative um, research, but it's something that uh, we should talk more about. No, that'd be, look, I'm always interested in exploring ways to understand complexity. And uh, anything that could bring forth better leadership and, and really start to make sense out of these various pockets of data, I, th- I think is a very interesting, um, very interesting process, very interesting proposition is the word I was looking for. Um, just coming yes. back to, to predicting behavior. So if, if you were going to guide some local community members or some local councils or even some organizations, Based off of, off of your work, what, what are some of the things that you would be telling for leaders to, to look for? In terms of bolstering their, um, their, their, their capacity and, and, uh, and so on? Yes. Look, I think there'd be two things there. One is uh, to, to think of it as substantial terms. Don't think of it as uh, you know, having to, to rebuild and, and just the recovery to get well in advance of that. Um, our whole premise has been that skilling people for the future years. Um, so look, on that, we'd be telling them that they should think about leadership programs. And we wouldn't do that from a sales perspective. We should really think that that's part of um, building the organizational skills. And hence, we, we have developed uh, you know, leadership mindsets, self-assessment, which has got um, seven mindsets of leadership, which some of which we've borrowed from the Diversity Council of Australia, which have a really uh, excellent set and put a lot of thought into that. So again, it, it brings through the link between inclusion and resilience, which is a strong one. So we've built that set and been testing it and getting that evaluated. So that's one thing. And if I give you some examples of that without too much detail, but being identity aware, being relational, open and curious, flexible and agile, growth focused, um, looking at health and wellness, having a mindset around that and collective leadership. And just to quickly look at a couple, when we, uh, our observation, our anecdotal observation, but dealing in with triage projects to help businesses that were really being knocked over at the time during the pandemic, um, but also overlapping the last 18 months, we found that those leaders and organisations that didn't remain open and curious, flexible and agile and growth focused were the ones that hit the wall. 
and others manage to thrive uh, in the main, um, very hard to do in tourism if 100% of your market's being knocked out of international tourism. But where you stayed up and resilient and off the floor and maintain your composure and kept those three mindsets, those businesses, those people did much better. And I think there's an awful lot to look at in that because uh, um, you won't get to the point of having collective you know, community leadership and carters of people coming together, collaborating and thinking issues through and acting collectively for community self-efficacy, you know, its capacity to help itself and to solve problems. If you don't, keep your mind open. And those people that shut down, got caught in the crisis, got caught in the detail, stop planning, stop thinking big picture and stop thinking the future. And uh, that's a big topic, I think. And it's, it's, to me, it's one of the really big learnings. And that's what I would be talking to, for instance, a local government or a stakeholder about, um, trying, trying to build that and overcome that so that you're getting comfortable. That's where we're getting a lot of traction. We've got one uh, small small community in um, far north uh, Queensland. Uh, this is in a, a very hot, um, you know, very warm part of the world. Um, they're a couple of hundred kilometres from the coast. And uh, they involved youth. They involved the seniors from year 11 high school in the workshops we were running in what was pretty groundbreaking in that uh, we had professionals uh, and students in the same room. The students coped amazingly well. And they were clearly students that were well-filtered in terms of taking part in that. But not only do they cope with that dynamic, they have now grown their own skills to mentor peers. And those young people, apart from their final year at school, I have no doubt will go on to be amazing, um, you know, informal resilience mentors into the future. And those are the types of models I think that people are really wanting to look at and showing a lot of interest in collective leadership, getting carters of people together, different uh, demographics, um, and most definitely cross-sector collaboration, because that intersectoral collaboration is such an important part of um, recovery anyway. Mm. I gave a very long answer there, but it's, a, it's obviously a very involved um, a model that we look at, but it has to be comprehensive. Otherwise, you are doing one-offs, and, and they're not, there's not much efficacy in that. No, I thought that was actually a brilliant answer because, you know, the whole t- when you were talking, I was actually thinking about my process and, and sustainability and, you know, how we really try to develop this ongoing process of evaluation and feedback and, and to ensure that, that we are accounting for all these, all, for the complexity, that we are able to take into account what is needed to achieve um, social prosperity. You know, how can we achieve the sustainable development goals? How can we get people involved in a manner that they realize that their decisions, that their perspectives, that their opinions are actually going to make their future better? And, you know, a lot of what you were just talking about there is about, you know, involving them in the process, getting, getting the wheels turning so that that way, you know, that you're creating this, this cycle of, of teaching one group who teaches another. And it just continues on. And I think it's a beautiful model to really start to look at, at how do we implement that into things such as is teaching the sustainable development goals or, or trying to achieve other aspects of community development that, that maybe have been lacking behind. So no, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, look, if uh, we're talking, uh, you know, as an example, if we talked about your own you know, third eye and your own business and your own approaches and methodologies, we could bring those together uh, very neatly in an in a integrated program because that 
integrated approach of having some um, evidence and, and some needs, needs analysis and some data to tailor a program and then have some follow-up um, brings those things together really well. And, you know, we, don't, we can keep the resilience aspect in, but we don't have to only focus on that. Uh, we can, you, know, you can bring in other elements. But the model itself of having um, the notion that you can try to, in terms of resilience at least, we look at personal, we look at organisational, and we look at community. It's really important. It's a crossover, the you know, intersection of uh, in that Venn diagram. Uh, if you picture those circles, uh, is really important. That's a space where um, your work and our work and the work of others can can uh, blend very nicely. And other than this sort of resilience and recovery space, is is there? Have you been able to apply that same model to to anything maybe such as a sustainable development goal or another topic? Because honestly, it sounds like to me that your implementation model could, could really work across the board on so many things. I mean, yeah, it seems very um, universal. Yeah, well, that's, you know, I think that's a really good point. No, we haven't um, applied that at, at the present to, to others. We, obviously, we, we've got various templates we, we use and we tailor those. And I think that's the really important thing that it, uh, cookie-cutter approaches don't work. So if we were to marry up with something on, on sustainability, um, uh, we, you, you would change the inflection of things uh, and you change some of the content. But what's really important here is that so much of the content is coming from people, the community, and their own workspaces. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of this. You, you're not trying to pour in um, material and knowledge so much as empower people and you know, take a strengths-based approach. So on a personal level, uh, we can always look at people's lack of composure or their problems or their emotional avoidance uh, strategies which uh, hamper their life. Um, or we can uh, acknowledge that and then look at their strengths and say, how can we use your strengths to overcome that? And it's the same with communities, building on those strengths. And, and there are people who work very well in that space that do, a, do have an amazing approach, philosophical approach, like Ernest Soroli and so on, who don't look to help you. They, they look to, uh, to, to help guide you um, when, you're, when you're ready. And I think that's really important. And, and certainly in terms of small communities and, and communities that uh, are looking to develop themselves uh, these notions are really important. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is how can we workshop in this podcast a way that we can help out some community members and maybe some councils? There some work right now that we can explore for them as to what they could do when they don't have an amazing facilitator such as yourself. I think so much of it is the, it was part, that was partly answered perhaps by my, you know, previous, uh, the previous topic there. I find one of the barriers, I'll go back to a barrier here, that one of the barriers is you might experience this as well. It's not what you might be able to offer people even when you take a very empowering, you know, people-centered or human-centered or human-designed approach. Um, it's the fact of whether they have got the self-awareness, the organizational awareness to actually want you in there. And uh, sadly, a lot of communities and sometimes local governments, understandably, are driven by their success or otherwise with grant funding and external funding. And that then drives your interest or your need in some way. Now, that's not totally true or as black and white as that, but so often community, um, community sector, uh, new neighbourhood centres and so on in this country, um, I have always have this image of it's like having a whole series of ping-pong balls um, floating down a river and you're trying to put your arms around them and you say, this is my organisation. And some are floating off and some are coming in 
and uh, that's the nature of their their funding. It's short term. It's it can be an eclectic and interesting mix, but it makes it quite hard. So trying to get them to, I guess, helicopter up, have a better perspective, and uh, to look at ways that they can have a comprehensive approach and a longer term approach, which is always a challenge. Uh, and particularly in our country, we we don't always take a long term view. So. Look, I think those, those things are the types of barriers. So hence the, the part of the answer is how can you get in behind those and try and help steer them to it? Um, for those of us who've got solutions, we like to think we've got solutions that can be tailored and uh, we don't like selling the solutions so much as matching them to, to uh, you know, an organisation or a region's needs. And uh, it's a more complex process, as you're as you no doubt, doubt aware. So look, it is it's a, quite a challenge to do it. And I don't think it's easily done, um, and it is absolutely best done in uh, in having people uh, you know hear us, people like us, articulate this and articulate, if not successes, but uh, you know some examples and and uh, exemplars of um, kind of change in these processes in uh, in our own country and in other regions. And I think that's look. I know for for the work that I do in sustainability and impact measurement, it's. You know, it's, it's about the brave standing up and saying that this is what we need. You know, not so long ago, it seemed almost like um, it, it didn't have as much traction, I guess, pre-COVID-19 that it, than it does now. You know, and so now it seems to be all the wave of, of people sort of gathering on to, to sustainability concepts and so forth. And, and there's been some of us been working in this field for a long time. Coming full circle, I guess that, you know, I, I see it where... How can we, how can we support those who, who may not have council's ear, but yet they recognize the need for resilience, and they and they see that, you know, again they have no funding stream, they have no grants, they have nothing, but yet they want to, to dive in and try to make a difference and try to make a change because I think that that's that's what the world's about. It's about these individuals who sort of stand up and take the lead and. You know, you had, you've touched upon being a part of the process in this continual cycle of learning and, and teaching and being proactive. But I guess now I just want to dive into to maybe a listener who's out there at this moment who's thinking, wow, this is, this is exactly what my community needs. I don't have the contacts, but I want to become proactive. I mean, yes, there's Google research and there's all this stuff out there, but what can we do to make somebody... Uh, be more proactive in the resilience field within his own, within his small or identified world to to make the world a better place. Really, at the end of the day, yeah, I think it's uh, you know touching on uh, various things we've already spoken about. It is uh, just raising that awareness, um, showing showing examples of the efficacy of certain approaches, and yeah, there are many approaches that, that are going to work. Um, it's helping people, I think, to shift that mindset that. Resilience, recovery, and so on are about assets and uh, about fixing things up that have been damaged or, uh, or whatever it might be. That you know, that social capital is very important, um, and I and I, I think uh, some people do that really well, and some organisations do that very well. I can think of uh, local governments uh, that some that I'm talking to at the moment who've got exceptional people in them that just get it. Um, so, but then they have to be heard themselves, and they have to tie that to. Um, some sort of funding, but I think the you know the positive thing is people perhaps are starting to move now because COVID, at least as disastrous as it's been for many, but but has also I think has been somewhat has forced us to be very adaptive, and uh, you can see things shifting and changing uh, as we speak in our in our own country right now. 
um, and it's it's moving in I think in a very positive way. And as people get back to work, and I'm flying all over the countryside, and you know, we're we're more conscious of social distancing, uh, even though I hate that term. Uh, we might as well call it emotional distancing. Let's you know, um, but we we we're getting. I think we're adapting to it, so our minds then are more open to there must be a better way to go, because this could just all occur again. You know, the second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave. Uh, I don't think I think people are starting to realise that this is a metaphor for what people have been doing to weather event disasters or um, in in some spaces around sustainability and, and other issues. So I think the timing is perfect, um, and but I think all we can do is keep just keep this narrative and push that narrative. Uh, and bring people into that narrative and, and hear where they're coming from. Because uh, it goes much deeper than what, even what we're talking about. There's, um, if we think of just resilience, there's then got a cultural overlay. So in our own country here, um, Indigenous Australians have another whole depth of, of understanding of this and what resilience might mean to them culturally and how important that is. Uh, and to bring in other notions that we do, but they're more on a psychological and behavioural basis. And then tie that into again the tying of the community, the personal, um, and the organisational together. But then people bring their own cultural overlay. It does become very complex; becomes more three dimensional. Um, but it becomes yeah, the more holistic it becomes, the better it becomes. So again, making sure all voices uh, contribute to this narrative is really important. Mm. And, and look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And as as uh, as you're well aware, I think that's the. You know, sort of the basis of all my work is, is gathering that, that comprehensive stakeholder input. And it's, it's just so great to, to really hear you touching on all these points. And um, look, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the stage three here to close, close out this interview. And, and I think it's really about just summing it up. So now I guess I just want to, is there a few questions or even some summary points or just a take-home message that if someone was listening to this, they could just write down real quickly to and, and I know we've touched upon this, so I, I don't mean to ask you to repeat yourself, but just some questions that maybe that they could ask to their to their fellow stakeholders or some thought points that they should um, take home. Yeah, look, I think that my summary would be, uh, and these these can all be turned into questions for someone to take back to uh, you know um, someone in, in a high leadership position or in someone in a community leadership position. Um, so our learnings have been. Focus on enhancing social capital and build resilient leadership around that. Addressing the levels of personal resilience and collective resilience is really important. And that also includes wellness because there is, again, a research linkage between resilience and wellness. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's, uh, it would pass any, uh, um, you know, any even casual conversation. Those two things are linked. Uh, and to, to, un- to, to ensure that that is undertaken, I think, with some focus on um, emotional intelligence and given the fact that composure is such a critical and pivotal aspect of personal resilience, how do I tr- control my, um, how do I, you know, my emotional self-regulation? Uh, I need to, to address that. I need to make sure it's as sharp and as improved and enhanced as it possibly can be. And then I can start dealing with whatever the world throws at me. And the third thing I think that we think is... Uh, and you have commented on is creating some notion of certified resilience mentors, teaching people how to how to fish, um, having that passed on. That's that culmination. That's where you can, can have parallel programs of youth, professionals, community, and business. Um, and that's the next point I think is encouraging those very diverse, multi-sector carders of leadership programs. Um, they're far better in our experience 
than uh, a single sector looking at that. And, and, and the final point I think that we, we think is vital part of our approach is uh, provide one-on-one coaching and mentoring to people during their learning. Um, it's amazing in one hour how deep and rich the conversation can become one-on-one. And the role of a coach or a mentor um, really is to find people's strengths, help, to, help them to overcome hurdles that uh, they're creating between their left ear and their right ear. Uh, it's not about giving advice. Um, it's not about pouring in ideas or content. In fact, you know, keep, controlling one's liability of experience is really important in mentoring and coaching and let people um, discover that a growth mindset is the way that they'll change their life. So we think that's really important, taking people, taking communities from good to great, um, building those skills, building in an inherent ability for self and organisational and community reflection. Uh, and those are the keys to, um, to change. Uh, you know, fixed mindset applies as much to a community as it does sometimes to, um, to individuals. So overcoming that, we think, is... Uh, tying all those things together starts to chip away at them and set long-term uh, learning goals that um, uh, try and uh, build better leaders over five years and support them in doing that, build better communities over 10 years, uh, you know, stop thinking we've got to get better in the next six months. Great checklist there. I guess as you were um, going through this, a measurement approach came to mind. Is there any way of actually measuring if these if these points are being achieved and so forth? Yeah, look, there is one, uh, one good example, I think, is um, personal resilience. So we, uh, we look at the work of Jury uh, also on that, and uh, he has a six domains of personal resilience model. Um, and we make sure that people are aware of that model and they do some self-assessment. And those are six domains of uh, are really critical. They're not just critical in resilience. They're critical, I think, in leadership. And they spill over into to other, um, other aspects as well. So vision, composure, reasoning, health and well-being, tenacity, and collaboration. And we put a somewhat of our own complexion on that in terms of you know, health and wellness and collective leadership for collaboration and so on. But knowing why you get out of bed, being able to control yourself, being able to reason and solve problems and show some self-efficacy, uh, attending to your health to keep yourself as robust as you can, and being tenacious um, are all you know, vitally important things. And then ultimately, you've got that collaboration is where do you get your support from? Who do you show gratitude to? Uh, who do you support? Um, so we've taken that as the basis for people to really look at the notion of having um, supports and strategies, um, sagacity, you know, drawing on their own wisdom to support their own resilience. And you get resilient people, you get resilient organizations, and you get resilient communities and uh it's you know it's not about fireproofing it's about that capacity to stay strong um and you know i think that's something we've, we've leaned on we've obviously developed our leadership mindset model and i've got a series of questions behind that and again pre and post uh evaluation of both those models allows us to see some growth um and we end up in those with positive psychology tools that people can use throughout life and they can take off and uh, revisit their values, revisit their, their own personal billion, revisit those domains in life that are, that are value to them. Or in down moments, think about um, you know, spending time in nature and uh, all the research and evidence that comes with the, uh, the joy of doing that. Uh, and, and showing gratitude is, uh, in positive psychology is a really critical thing. 
And I thank you, you going back and reflecting on that, your very kind comments at the start of this uh, podcast. Uh, you, um, some of us um, get, get flush a bit when we hear that. It's just such a, a wonderful thing to, to, to hear someone express gratitude, and it's very good for the, the expresser of that gratitude that you are grateful for things in life and um and on the same i show gratitude wherever i possibly can and just reflect on it so there's a lot to it marcus that i think that that people can take throughout life and uh some of those things are very measurable i'm so gr- grateful to have you not on, on this podcast because you know you're you're such an expert on on this field i mean it's um it's not often that I'm at a loss for words, Lee, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> as you know, I, I normally have so much to say, but you know, you, you really cover a lot of ground. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to have you on here. You've really, you've, ta- you've covered a lot of, of um, information. And I, I really hope that some of our listeners will send in, in some questions or look for some clarity that maybe we could cover in a future podcast. Because I'll tell you, it's... Um, Talking to you about your area of expertise is always a um, is always a learning lesson for me. That that's for sure. So it, it's great to have people to to know that people like you are working in communities to make a difference and to get people, you know, to help them with resilience and recovery, to teach them leadership, to do all these things. It, it, it's just it's a testament to you, and it's a testament to those who who are putting in the work and and really looking to make. Um, their communities a better place to live, to make them more sustainable, to make them a happier place for all, and to really sort of sift through the noise to to really find some answers that maybe have have been evading them. And I, I just think that's that's absolutely amazing. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. So I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. You really have um, pushed me with your uh, your ability to ask really pertinent questions, to to think through you know the connections between what we do, um, and sometimes we can all get lost in that. So look, I appreciate those comments, and, and look, thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it's a great series that you're doing and uh, uh, I wish you well. That, and uh, we hope that, yeah, that people pick things up and uh, implement ideas in their own community, ask questions at the very least and decide, uh, you know, could we do better? Thank you so much, Lee. And just before we go, do you want to, uh, would you like to recognize maybe an organization out there that's doing some amazing work that uh, you'd like to give a shout out to? Look, just broadly, uh, I'd probably be um, shy from being too too specific, but um, we're certainly working with some great people up in uh, a small community up there in Charters Towers in uh, yeah, far tropical North Queensland, and uh, they're doing some amazing stuff up there, um, dealing with some of the most disadvantaged in, in, in people uh, in our society. And uh, more broadly, but uh, just, just some of the all of the people that we've been working with who work in Indigenous health, and we run a program, uh, you know, an accredited diploma of leadership management in, in, around Indigenous health for Indigenous people who work in Indigenous health, obviously. And uh, I just walk away every time with just amazing, um, echoing the words you have just said, just amazing gratitude, a sense of uh, you know, positivity and optimism about the, the work that people do. And, and, and so, yeah, look, I've... I, the group that I talked to in South Australia last week and Cairns the, uh, uh, you know, a month ago. And uh, for people who um, are doing likewise, uh, who took part in the Brisbane program uh, earlier this year, yeah, all doing amazing things. And it just stays in my mind uh, when I get stuck on some of my own things to look at um, the hard work and tenacity of people working in, uh, in areas that sometimes can be, uh, can be exhilarating, but also can be very difficult. Excellent. And and the final question is, if anyone wants to reach you, uh, do, are you happy to give out your email address in the, in the website for Institute of Tourism Leadership Australia? 
Absolutely. That's, um, that's, that's fine. We'd, we'd uh, love to have a chat to anybody. Lee, thanks again for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode on Resilient. For our next episode, we have Chelsea McLean, founder of Circular Economy Pioneers Australia. Circular economy references are becoming quite commonplace at work, in the community, in our home. So tune in to learn what the circular economy is and why you should care. Until next time.